This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. So we are reading the Minor Prophets together this semester. And uh, the Minor Prophets are these 12 books, the 12 um, short books of prophets at the end of the Old Testament. They're called Minor because they're short. Um, And we're reading a book each week and we're studying it together. We're looking at the prophet, the book, and a key passage from that prophet. And the reason we're doing this together is because we, um, we see that the Minor Prophets, they're life challenging. They can actually change the way that we live. And they're also graphic. They can contain some of the scariest warnings and also some of the most beautiful promises in the whole Bible. And they're these these quick, vivid snapshots. They're like postcards. They're not like a long, boring documentary, but these quick, vivid snapshots. So the name of our series is Postcards from the Edge. And so tonight we're looking at the prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah is one of the longest of the minor prophets. And it's a crazy book. If you've ever tried to read it, you probably got lost halfway through. It is, it's, um, it's a series of these, Zechariah has these divine dream visions where God gave Zechariah a prophecy for his people while he was asleep. And these visions are graphic and symbolic and powerful. So first a little introduction, who was Zechariah? So he lived and he spoke our passage around 520 B.C., so for historical comparison, that was about eight years before, or Buddhism began about eight years prior in India. So in 586 BC, Babylon, the empire of the Babylons, conquered Jerusalem. Uh, the Babylonians, they conquered Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple of God. And the Jews, God's people, went into exile in Babylon. And then about 45 years later, in 539, the Persian Empire conquered Babylon and uh, took over all their territory. And then in 538, the next year, the Persian king Cyrus made a decree that the Jews could go home and they could go home and rebuild their houses and they could go home and rebuild God's home. They could go rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But only 50,000 people went. So Zechariah is prophesying in 520. Uh, BC to this small, poor group of people. They're like a third world developing nation who, frankly, they're overwhelmed. They're feeling hopelessly weak and poor and punished. Remember, God just sent them into exile for 70 years. And into this historical scene, Zechariah gives this close up vision, this personal view, this view of what God really thinks of us. Just want to say I got a lot of help this week from my friend Sid Druin on this sermon. So um, tell you a story. Uh, perhaps the most embarrassing day of my 10th grade year was the day I wore my sister's jeans to school. So I have two older sisters. They're seven and 10 years older than me. And I guess I just got tired of the clothes in my closet. And one day, I, and their leftover clothes were in my, their closet. And so one day I got a pair of my sister's jeans that I thought fit. And I thought they were cool because my sisters were cool. And somehow my mom didn't stop me from wearing these out of the house. And it wasn't until I was sitting in Mrs. Will Hoyt's English class, looking at Will Craig's cool shoe, cool clothes, and then looking down at my sister's jeans, that I realized that my pants didn't fit the way that they're supposed to, that they weren't as cool as I thought they were. And if you've ever had, if you've ever, boys, you ever worn your sister's jeans to school, you know, um, <laughs> deep, deep feelings of inadequacy and shame. Um, clothes are a really interesting thing. 
Clothes are a really interesting thing. I always find it interesting to watch the fashion changes here at Wake. It's usually right, right after the break, um, right after summer break or right after Christmas break, everyone gets a new wardrobe and people start dressing more and more like each other. Um, people start wearing the same shoes or carrying the same backpacks or everyone gets the same jeans. This isn't just a Wake thing. This is a human thing. We dress in a way that allows us to be given a certain status with someone. Right? We dress to fit in. Preppies dress to fit in with preppies. Hipsters dress to connect with their hipsters. This is something that all of us do. And for all of us, there's this underlying anxiety around clothes. Um, I remember Christmas years back, I got a new coat. And I was excited because I wanted this coat really bad. And I remember the first day I wore it, I felt so awkward. Well, first I felt great, but then I wore it out in public. And I felt awkward and uncomfortable uh, because on the one hand, I was wearing the sweet coat that I loved, but on the other hand, I was thinking, everybody knows how much this jacket costs. Everyone knows I'm a fraud. Everyone's adding up the dollars of how much my outfit costs. Like, this is what was going through my head. And, and I don't think I'm alone in this. Um, all of us feel inadequate and insecure and unacceptable, and right, not just talking about clothes. There's this significant disconnect between how we appear to the world and how we know we are. None of us are as interesting as our Instagram profiles or as professional as our LinkedIn profile. We're actually pretty boring. We're not as good as people think we are. And for some of us, the feeling of inadequacy is a false low self-esteem. self-esteem. But for a lot of us, we project this false self, self to the world around us, the self that we think we should be, the, the false but acceptable self. Uh, the comedian Chris Rock puts it this way. He says, when someone is first meeting you, they aren't meeting you, they're meeting your representative, your PR man, someone you send ahead of yourself to make you look good. Why do we do this? Because we all feel inadequate. We all feel like hypocrites. And this deep feeling of inadequacy and hypocrisy is exactly what ancient Israel was feeling. Around 520 BC, God's people, his ancient church, was struggling to go through the religious motions, just like many of us are right now. The ancient Israelites were beat down by their circumstances and their sin, and they were trying to make holy sacrifices to a perfect God, and it all felt fake and hopeless. And I imagine their thought process went something like this. If a God of such perfection and holiness exists... How could he begin to accept a people who had just got out of spiritual jail in Babylon? That's what exile is. It's spiritual jail. How could this God accept a people who had nothing special to offer? They're poor and small in number and weak. But this passage offers ancient Israel and us incredible hope. Hope that we don't have to live alone and in secret. That we don't have to give up on life. We don't have to give up on God. And this hope doesn't look like pretending, pretending that we're better than we are and hiding all the bad stuff we think and feel. The hope doesn't look like performing, trying to be a better person. It also doesn't look like fake authenticity, giving up on ourselves and sinning boldly to make the outside match the way the inside feels. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, God gives us real hope. And here it is. God gives us the acceptance that we crave through Jesus. And if we believe in him, our acceptance overflows into our real relationships. I'll say that again. God gives us the acceptance we crave through Jesus, and if we believe in him, our acceptance overflows into real relationships. And our passage speaks this glorious truth into our hearts by picturing its three parts in this vision. And if you're taking notes, here's my outline. First, we're going to see the acceptance we crave in verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to see the acceptance that God's, God gives in verses 4 and 5 and 8 and 10. 
And then finally, in verses 6 and 7, we're going to see the overflow of God's acceptance into our relationships. The acceptance we crave, the acceptance God gives, and the overflowing of that acceptance. So first, the acceptance we crave. Verse 1 tells us that this acceptance happens in a heavenly courtroom. So the prophet Zechariah is having this night vision, something like a divinely guided dream. And in this vision, God shows him the Lord's spiritual courtroom. This is where everyone is going to appear at the end of life and at the end of the world. Verse 10 calls it that day, and the Bible refers to it as the day of the Lord. And in this courtroom in heaven, there are three main players. We're shown there's a judge who's the angel of the Lord, a prosecutor, Satan, and third, the accuser, or sorry, the accused, who in this case is Joshua, the high priest of Israel, who was the priest at the time of Zechariah. And so here's what's going on symbolically and actually. Remember, this is a true vision. So we've got the angel of the Lord who stands in for and speaks on behalf of God. Then we've got Satan, who is another name for the devil. And then Joshua, the high priest, is the representative for each and every one of us. So really, the the judge is God, the prosecutor is the devil, and the defendant is you and me. And verse 1 describes Satan, the devil, accusing every one of us before God. And he's there, and he's listing off those things that we've done and we're still ashamed of. He's listing off all the things that we would never dare tell anyone that we've thought or done. All the things that we lock the door and close the blinds to do. All the secret struggles we hide from others. Now, you may be listening and thinking, really? Like Satan? The devil? Does anyone still believe in that stuff? And while you may, be, may think you're too sophisticated to believe in a literal Satan, let me ask you this. How do you explain your desperate need to be accepted? How do you explain the persistent experience of feeling accused? Accused by the voice in your own head? Accused by the world around you? If you've ever said to yourself, I don't deserve friends. I don't deserve to be loved. I don't deserve to be accepted because look what I've done or look what I've thought or look what's been done to me. Look who I am. I don't deserve it. Now, what are you doing here? Um, You're being accused. And who's accusing you? If you say, I'm accusing myself, why would you do that? Why don't you just stop if it's you? Look at verse 1. In that vision, Satan is standing at Joshua's right hand to accuse him. The voice of the accuser is the voice of Satan, telling you you're not good enough, telling you to turn around and go home, telling you to isolate yourself and hide. And even without the voice of the accuser, each of us are secretly worried about not making the grade. We're secretly worried that we're guilty. We see this in the deep-seated feelings I talked about earlier, the feelings of hypocrisy and inadequacy and lack of acceptance and disqualification. We see it in our fear of what others think of us. Many of us are imperfect perfectionists, and all of us worry that we're imposters. We can't live up to the hype or live down the criticism against us. We're not who we say we are. We don't really know what we're doing. We're constantly afraid of our bosses and our professors and our friends. We're we're fearful that they're going to call us out. We're afraid we're going to be exposed as unlovely losers, not worth others' time and effort. I mean, this is what's behind our nightmares, right? So my reoccurring nightmare is that I actually stand up. This is my nightmare. I stand up here to preach, and I can't read my notes. They're like in a different language, or I lose my, 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 my place, and then I get lost. Um, And one time a few years ago, before the start of a semester, I dreamt that I was standing up at large group preaching, and I totally got lost, and I stopped making sense. And in my dream, the student who was doing announcements at the time stood up and put her hand on my shoulder and said, John, it's okay. And like ushered me to sit down and said, all right, let's stand up and sing one last song. (laughs) 
<laughs> so much shame, so much feelings of inadequacy and hypocrisy, right? The voice inside our heads and dreams is the voice of the accuser. His accusations are booming down from the heavenly courtroom and seeping into our consciousnesses. Now, some of us, some of his accusations are false. The shame of physical abuse or sexual assault, getting picked on or overlooked, abuse or neglect as a child, that is not your fault. You are not to blame for that. But what about those true accusations against us? What about those guilt-inducing things that we really did do or think or feel? Are we going to be like a three-year-old whose face is covered in chocolate, who is stone-faced lying to his mom that he didn't eat any cookies? Look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us that we are caught red-handed in God's courtroom. We are clothed in filthy garments. And the original Hebrew in this passage is shockingly explicit. This word filthy means that we are covered with excrement, the, the feces and urine and vomit of our sin. So even if we deny our sin, God sees our hearts, and it's like we're standing before him in disgustingly soiled clothes. A few years ago, Mary Clark and I went to a friend's wedding, um, a, a very fancy wedding, uh, and amazing wedding, um, black tie wedding. Women were in ball gowns. Men were in tuxes. The wedding party was all in white dinner jackets. Very fancy, uh, amazing. And then we got to the church, and um, there was a guy, I'm not going to say his name just because of the story, and he shows up in a tan uh, like khaki suit. And he sits down the church, and as people start filing in, he just starts like crumbling and getting smaller and smaller. And he's like, what do I do? What do I do? And Mary Clark and I are like, it's fine. No one notices. Um, But there he was in a khaki suit. Everyone is dressed to the nines and he would have given anything for a change of clothes. And you can feel the anxiety in that. Here in in Zechariah 3, we're not at a Charleston wedding. We're in the throne room of God and we're not in khaki. We're covered in excrement. Don't you want a wardrobe change? what one pastor calls a divine dress reversal? Don't we want the clean clothes of verse four and five? I mean, certainly our culture longs for this reversal. All we need to do is listen to the stories we tell each other, the songs we play on repeat. I mean, uh, the way that Disney gives us for us, right? Every woman longs for a Cinderella transformation where she goes from being a poor, mousy, minimum wage earner to a rich, beautiful princess. And every man wants an Aladdin moment where he goes from a poor, unimportant, unemployed, orphaned man-child to a rich, successful prince. Now, clearly, fairy godmothers and magical genie lamps don't exist, but the historical Jesus does exist, and he can give us this dress reversal the belonging we crave. In verses four and five, God the judge becomes our defense attorney and he orders justice to be served for Joshua, for anyone who believes in Jesus. He says, remove the filthy garments from him. Behold, I've taken your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. But how is this justice? How can a good and fair judge call us innocent when we know we're guilty? Well, verses 8 through 10 show us how. God made his eternal son, Jesus Christ, an earthly servant. And this servant is the branch. All right, weird title. What does it mean that he's the branch? This is a prophecy referring to a descendant of King David. This is why the New Testament begins with the genealogy. Beginning of Matthew's gospel, gospel is this genealogy that shows us that Jesus is in King David's family tree, that he is the branch. 
And this branch of David lived a perfect life. And this is symbolized in the dream vision by this stone that's covered in seven eyes or seven facets. And seven's a perfect number, a complete number. So it's a perfect stone. And not only did Jesus live a perfect life, but he also died a perfect death. And his death is symbolized in this dream vision by the stone's engraved inscription. This is the scars on Jesus' body from his crucifixion. Jesus was inscribed for all time by the wounds of the crown of thorns in his scalp and the wounds of the three nails through his hands and his feet and the spear in his side. But so what? Jesus lived and died perfectly. I can't. What does that have to do with my life? And that's where our great high priest comes in. It's not a coincidence that the Hebrew name Joshua is translated Jesus in Greek. Here's what Zechariah is implying and the book of Hebrews in the New Testament makes clear. Jesus is Joshua. In the heavenly courtroom, Jesus stands in the place of Joshua and all who believe in Jesus. He is our substitute in the heavenly courtroom. On the cross, he took our filthy garments of sin and gave us his pure ones. In a divine sacrifice of substitution, Jesus gives us the innocent verdict and takes on our our guilty verdict for all time. The judge was judged for our sins. Here's what this means. Every time Satan accuses you, Jesus defends you. Every time that Satan points out the pornography or the pride, the laziness or the selfishness, the shame or the lack of faith, every single time there's an accusation against you, Jesus points to his wounds and tells his father, forgive her, forgive him. I paid for that sin. I died for that sinner. In other words, in Jesus, we are accepted for all time by the most perfect person in existence, God himself. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This means that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, it is a cosmic impossibility for you to be guilty. Colossians 2.14 says, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This means if you have faith in Christ, in order for you to be guilty, you would have to uncrucify Jesus, which is a historical impossibility. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This means that if you have faith in Christ, in order for you to be guilty, Jesus would have to disconnect himself from you, which is an existential impossibility. So what does it look like to live like this is true? Well, the next time you feel disqualified by life, the next time the voice in your head tries to accuse you, tell that voice, is that it? Is that all you've got? Listen, I'm far worse than you say I am but I'm also far more loved than you can ever imagine. You cannot touch me with your puny insults. But why? Have you ever wondered why the God of the universe would love us like this? I know this is out of order in the passage, but look at verse two. Verse two gives a hint. The Lord rebukes Satan. He tells him to back off his people. Now, why does God do this? Because God has chosen us. But the question remains, why? Why would he choose to save those who have had the spiritual equivalent of turning a porta potty upside down and emptying it on themselves? Clearly, it's not because of anything that we bring to the table. It's not because of our looks or our skills or achievement or our family. It has nothing to do with what we bring to the table and everything to do with God and what he brings. It's because of God's grace, his unmerited, 
undeserved favor. And it can only work this way. Um, one time a friend of mine uh, found his daughter trying, his, I think she was two, trying to change her own diaper, which is a horrible thing to walk in on. Um, and he says that there was just poop everywhere. This is a really gross sermon, isn't it? Um, just, <laughs> uh, she had wiped it on the floor and on the wall. And the more that she tried to get herself clean, the dirtier she got. And finally, my friend had to say, stop, stop, stop. Let me clean you. Uh, friends, the only way Jesus will clean us is if we stop trying to clean ourselves with our goodness and our efforts. Because our attempts to make ourselves beautiful to him are us just smearing it around and making it worse. If Zechariah's courtroom vision is so gross, but it's, it's in the scripture. Like this is the image that God gives us. Zechariah's courtroom vision, if, if it and our consciousness tell us anything, they tell us that we can't earn God's acceptance and also that we don't really want to. This is why the command for obedience in verse seven comes after, not before God's acceptance. To use theological terms, our sanctification always follows our justification. Our justification is that God declares you beautiful. And our sanctification is his commitment to making you into the beautiful thing that he has declared you to be. In the vision, God doesn't say to Joshua, Joshua, you got to get that robe cleaned up before you come into my presence. If you clean up, then I'll accept you. This would be conditional love. If you obey, then I'll accept you. No, God's love is unconditional. God changes Joshua's garments and then calls him into a beautiful life of obedience. He takes the filthy, soiled robes that we keep smearing about in and gives you clean, fresh out of the laundry, crisp from the cleaners, white garments of salvation. Why does he do this? Because he wants to be with you. And this is what's required. And if we get this, well, we do get this. We we get this longing. We long to be loved like this. We long to be loved with a love like this. This is why Beyonce sings, Darling, I wake up just to sleep with you. I open my eyes so I can see with you and I live so I can die with you. We have this longing to be loved like this. Justin Bieber sings, as long as you love me, we could be starving, we could be homeless, we could be broke. I mean, do you hear what they're saying? Like, this is the cry of our hearts. We want to be finally and fully loved for who we are, not for what we do. And this is the rest that's pictured in verse 10. And that day, declares the Lord, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That's a 500 BC way of saying that love sets you free. This kind of love is why we love cute babies and piles of puppies. And we think that having a girlfriend or a boyfriend is going to change everything. We long for unconditional love, a love that won't make us perform, a love that isn't bossy or withholding, a lover we can be ourselves around. And friends, only God can give you that kind of love. Only God doesn't love us because we're lovely. And only God's love will make you lovely. And I want to end by very briefly exploring just how God's love makes us lovely and then what that lovely loveliness looks like in verses 6 and 7. And before we get into that, I want you to notice that God's unconditional acceptance is not the end of the story. Instead, his love serves the purpose of equipping us to love him and to love others. I love the way that Pastor Scotty Smith puts it. He says, grace doesn't free us to live poorly, but to live generously. Grace is not a a green card for self-indulgence. It's our only hope for serving one another in love. This is so true. Grace is our only hope for serving one another in love. So what does serving one another in love look like? 
Verses 6 and 7 suggest that it means acting like God's priests everywhere and with everyone. So what does that mean, acting like God's priests? 1 Peter 2 tells us that all of us are God's priests, called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So if you belong to Jesus, he transforms your life purpose and your greatest joy to live out of this truth with all of your being. Jesus has taken our dark filth and replaced it it with marvelous purity. If we believe that and really begin to live like that's the truest thing about us, that we are finally and fully accepted, then our worship of God changes and our human relationships change for the better. How? Well, we can come to God unafraid and unashamed with our praise and with our sin. Because in Jesus, he will always accept us and always cleanse us. And we can go to people with reckless self-forgetfulness that doesn't compete with others for affirmation and is free to make mistakes. Here's what I'm saying. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, frees you to live in freedom rather than hiding in crushing secrecy. 500 years before Jesus entered time and space and took our sin on the cross, Zachariah was given this vision of what God was going to do through Christ. And Zechariah wasn't the only onlooker on that scene. By his prophecy, you are too. And that's the point. God is giving you a peek into what he planned to do and what he did in and through Jesus. The gospel is meant to accumulate in our souls so that instead of feeling like God's greatest disappointments, we begin to believe that we're God's greatest delights. And it's meant to add up so that instead of feeling like we just crawled out of a porta potty, We brim with the confidence and energy and the joy of being loved by God in Christ. I want to close with this story. Um, When I was in college, my pastor told me a story about a friend of his. And um, when he met this girl when they were in college, and you know how things go. They fell in love. um, Then they got engaged. And uh, they went to premarital counseling with their pastor. Um, and one, one week, their topic in, topic in premarital counseling was their sexual history. And the guy started, and he said that he really didn't have any sexual history, and he's really excited um, to learn with this with his wife. And then uh, he turned to his wife or his fiancée, and she just completely shut down. She didn't want to talk. She was guilty. She was ashamed, fearful. And after gathering great courage, she shared with her pastor and fiancée that before they met, she had had a season of life where she'd been very promiscuous. And because of that, she carried so much shame and was terrified for her fiancé to know. She tried to keep it hidden, but now that they're engaged, she, just, she couldn't bear it anymore. And she said she wasn't fit to be his wife. And her husband looked at her, her fiancé looked at her and told her he loved her and forgave her and that he wanted to be with her. Um, and then, so a few months later, they get married and they have their wedding and their ceremony. And then on their wedding night, um, they go to the hotel for their wedding night and Um, she's overwhelmed again with this fear and this guilt and this shame. And um, he says to her, I have a gift for you. And he goes to the closet and he pulls out this new, clean, white gown. And he told her, this is for you. Would you please put this on? Because I want you to know how I see you. And then he read to her from Isaiah 1. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Friends, Jesus has taken the filth of your sin into himself to give you clean garments because he wants to be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for Zechariah and the, uh, the vividness of this picture you give. 
that you um, call our sin sin for what it is and you show us how gross and defiling it is and then you show us what you have done for us in Christ, that you have taken our filth and given us clean robes in him. Uh, Lord, would you help us to believe this? Help us to believe that the truest thing about us is not our sin, um, but your delight in us and our union with you. Lord, thank you that this is the work you've done for us in Christ. So hear this good word from his throne. May the love of God the Father and the grace of his Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you until that great day. Amen. Amen.